Reeling from all the terrible news, but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollack. This is What Can I Do, the podcast where we help you figure out what to do when you are freaking out. I am here with my co-host, Lila Nordstrom. Hi, Lila. Hey, Kelly. How are you? Uh, Not currently freaking out, but given that we're less than a year out from an election, I imagine I'll be freaking out soon. (laughs) Planning to freak out. Great. We are finally going to have what I feel like is a very long awaited discussion with someone in the gun violence prevention space, which is a topic that we've been talking about covering here for a long time. So we're incredibly pleased to have Angela Farrell Zabala, who is the executive director of Moms Demand Action here with us today. Welcome to What Can I Do? Thank you. I'm really thrilled to be here with you this afternoon. So we like to start this podcast with the same question uh, for everyone, which is, Can you talk a little bit about your background when it comes to advocacy? Did you grow up in an activist household or political household? Like, how did you end up working in this space? Yeah, thank you for that question. It's something I think about often. How did I get here? Many of us, uh, especially in the advocacy world, you find yourself in it for, uh, you know, almost two decades for me. And you're like, how the heck did that happen? Um, I think for me, I really saw the example from my community, particularly looking at my mother, my grandmother. Um, I'm a black woman. I grew up in a family that was, um, you know, kind of working class family. So um, there was a lot, you know, working to make sure that they kept the lights on and had food on the table, but did everything in their power, both my parents, to make sure that we felt loved and got everything that we needed. I think in communities often like that, you can feel overlooked. Um, And instead of waiting for systems or I often say, I love to say, waiting for Superman uh, to come figure out solutions for you, I actually saw firsthand examples of both um, my mother, my grandmother and others in my family stepping up and figuring out how to make a difference or figuring out how to get you know, get get the action that they they needed without having to over rely on others to do so. I also saw political engagement at a young age. So my mother, for example, when I was about I think seven or eight years old, I remember her taking me uh, to go vote with her, and she did this regularly. And when I was that age, seven or eight. I really thought when I was in the voting booth with my my mother that I was voting myself. And she'd explain it the whole way. We're driving there. I would get the little sticker. That came much later. They didn't do the stickers when I was that young. Um, But they, um, you know, she would explain along the way why it was so important. And that really stuck with me. And I felt like that's really amazing that an individual can step up and actually make a difference through voice, through voting or through connecting with community. So that's kind of the roots of why I I got into this work. And I have worked in all kinds of uh, different social justice issues over the last almost 20 years. Um, And I continue to push and and do whatever I can to make sure that our communities are safe. So you just mentioned that you've worked in a lot of different areas. And I think uh, it increasingly people are realizing how intersectional all of this is that you know you may be working in gun violence prevention but that doesn't stand alone as an issue could you talk a little bit about that and how that informs your approach to doing this work 
Absolutely. The first thing I would say is that no one lives their lives in a vacuum. When we start to think about politics or when we start to think about um, how people thinking about civic engagement or, or the values that people hold, oftentimes that's looked at very narrowly, but people live their lives in different places in different ways. So for instance, I'm a black woman, I'm also a queer woman, I'm a mother, I, you know, I live in Washington DC, I can name a whole lot of things and those are different kinds of overlapping identities. Um, and so I think intersectionality allows us to understand the complexity of problems and be able to figure out solutions. And sometimes there's overlapping. And when we think about gun violence in particular, we know that there's systemic reasons sometimes uh, for some of the ways that we're seeing gun violence, particularly in communities most disproportionately impacted. And that often is black and brown communities. Um, and so if we look at things in isolation or in a vacuum, it's really difficult to get really solid strategy to make sure that we're moving, not only to make the change when we, from a political and legislative or policy angle, but also a cultural and movement angle. If we're not seeing all those pieces, we're really missing it. So intersectionality is very important. I've always seen it that way and continue to work in that way. Can you talk about how Moms Demand is distinct from other gun violence orgs, not distinct from other gun violence orgs? Where are the points where you are able to work together as a broader movement and where do you have kind of unique abilities or unique focuses? Yeah, the way I see this is as an ecosystem. The problem is so, um, so big. It's a public health crisis in our country at this point and we need absolutely all hands on deck. So we often work in partnership, whether it's national gun violence prevention organizations or on the ground and hyper-local groups that are doing the very work of uh, moving moving community, moving legislation, whatever that is to make sure we're getting to the end we want, which is no gun violence in our communities. Um, I think where Moms Demand Action stands out is that it is a national organization. It has a, a network in all 50 states plus the District of Columbia, which makes us the largest grassroots gun violence prevention organization in the country. But again, we're always looking and willing to partner because we understand that in order to actually get the change that we need and the Americans want to see, we have to do this uh, in community and collaboration and look at really look at the ecosystem and look at the problem and how our different kinds of expertise and experience can make, make it such that we have strategies that can actually change uh, the course when it comes to gun violence in this country. So one of my favorite things about Moms Demand Action is uh, the way that the moms, not all moms, but you know, you know a lot of moms, uh, show up in state legislatures. Uh, I think that's something we don't necessarily see a whole lot of. I went, I live in Illinois and went to Springfield with moms a few years ago, and it was the first time I'd ever been to the state capitol. It was the first time I'd ever experienced, it had never even occurred to me to go and see what my state legislators were doing on the ground. Could you talk a little bit about that and the the sort of actual on the ground, what the that kind of work that Moms Demand Action does? Absolutely. And we like to call ourselves mothers and others. Well, uh, you know, Moms Demand Action came out of our, my founder, Shannon Watts, who jumped into action after uh, the Sandy Hook massacres and organically uh, moms and women started coming together because it, they were thinking about their children's safety and said, we have to do something about this. But we've since expanded. We expanded in the sense of like how we look at this problem holistically that yes, it is our safety or our children because this is a leading cause of death for children, teens and young adults in this country. But it's beyond just uh, you know school safety. 
uh, and mass shootings. It's also about the uh, suicide. It's also about unintentional shootings that happen because of unsecured firearms. And frankly, looking at daily gun violence that happens in communities of color that doesn't often make a headline. Um, so when we look at uh, Moms Demand Action and what it looks like on the ground, we make it accessible for people to bring what they can, right? Nothing is too small to, to contribute to this movement. Um, and so we make sure that we have people in all of our states plus DC um, to look at the, the issues that are going to impact very locally. We know that while we're still fighting and looking at change at the federal level, and by the way, we've gotten a lot of movement from this administration. The Biden-Harris administration has been the strongest on gun safety in the history uh, that we work with. Uh, but we also know that hyper-locally, people really want to have the material, see material impact and change in their communities. And how does that happen? That happens with people in communities making a difference, whether it is having a conversation with your neighbor, simply, uh, you know, an example is we have a Be Smart program, which is a program that is, um, it's it stands up so that we can educate folks about the dangers of unsecured firearms in the home. And through Be Smart, one of the things we often say, a very simple thing you can do, are you taking your children over to a play date or are they going to spend the night at a home? You can ask those parents, do you have a gun? And not because you're policing someone, but because you want to understand if you have a gun, if the answer is yes, great. Is that weapon secured? Because my child's in that home and we know that we don't want to have someone, a young person, a child have access to a firearm that should not have access. So we make it so that people can do that anywhere from, again, having these conversations, going to the state house uh, and lobbying or speaking to, to legislatures, as you said, um, Oftentimes people don't understand that you have access. We voted these folks in, they work for us. We can go and have the conversations and really let them know about the pulse of the community, the constituents need and want. You can bring that forward. And I think it's really important to do so. And lastly, I will say, we also um, you know, have a lot of volunteers that have been doing this incredible work of advocating for good policy. And they start to um, see oh, wait, you know, I'm waiting for somebody to step up and be a gun sense champion and do the right thing, but I could do that. And so we have more and more of our volunteers running for office and we are supporting that. So there's all ways that you can engage from the, the state level and the local level. And we're really excited um, to partner with folks on this and really support this incredible bustling network of volunteers, Moms Demand Action and Students Demand Action. I love that you gave us a specific example of this just now, but I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about it. I feel like this issue can feel very intractable and part of its in, part of its feeling of intractability is that it feels like at the federal level, there are a lot of very common sense laws that people support you know, broadly that don't ever see the light of day. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about where folks can put their effort on this issue locally in terms of like, are there are there certain kinds of policies that we're seeing effective at the local level? Are there certain ways in which you're seeing that your local chapters are making change that might not be visible to us zoomed out, but are good places for people to think about, you know, taking action in their own communities? Yes, absolutely. First of all, I would say the majority of Americans agree and believe that we should be doing everything in our power to enact common sense gun reform and safety laws that are going to protect all communities. So when we do that, again, everybody is protected, particularly when we think about how this impacts our children in this country. Um, and I've traveled all around the country. It doesn't matter if it's a red state, blue state, 
same thing. People are on the same page about this issue. It doesn't matter if you're a gun owner, a Republican, Democrat, again, people get this. Uh, and so some of the ways it, it, it really does depend on state, it depends on region, um, but anything from what I talked about, uh, like be, uh, be smart, we make sure that we're talking to health departments locally and school systems to see if we can distribute materials and for parents so they understand um, when you have a firearm, what it means um, to be a responsible gun owner and secure that weapon so that not only your children don't have access to it or someone else's children, but even uh, there's a growing number of people that may have their car, their, um, their guns stored in like a gloved compartment in a car and those are getting cars are getting broken into and stolen so how do you secure the firearm so that people that do not need to have access to the firearm don't get it um, we think about things like um, extreme risk protection orders uh, where it allows for um, law enforcement or courts and family uh, to be able to flag if there is someone that is showing signs of potentially causing harm to themselves or others. We're working on um, all kinds of things to really put the attention also on the industry. We know that uh, the gun lobby is really behind a lot of why we're seeing this happening across this country. This $9, million, $9 billion industry is raking in all this money and still we're looking at, I'm gonna say it over and over again, the leading cause of death for kids. So how do we hold accountable an industry that could make really reasonable co accommodations and innovate so that their technology is much safer and it doesn't end up in the wrong hand. So that happens at the very local level. Of course, running people for office. We have our young our young leaders that we really look to uh, to help lead us. Uh, and oftentimes you may have seen um, them doing like school walkouts and, and things like that, really organizing to bring attention to the issue at hand uh, and to get the people and change makers and people that are in office and elected that are supposed to do the work of protecting and, and, and carrying out the will of the American people that they understand what's at stake. So I get to ask you one of my favorite questions uh, for anyone who who is eligible to be asked, which is you're a mom, uh, which you mentioned, uh, and you were inspired by your own mom and grandma, and you're of course in an organization that you know is is uh, encouraging moms to get involved. So uh, I just want to hear a little bit about how being a parent has informed your activism, your outlook on organizing, uh, and you know how you think about getting your own children involved and inspired to do this kind of work. Yeah, what a great question. You know, I often say when people ask this, is that every single time, I'm a mother of four, by the way, so I'm a little tired, but I'm good. Um, I often say every single time I held my child, my new child, um, in my arms for the first time, it just really reset my purpose. It, you know, it made me want to do everything in my power. And I believe this is probably most parents to make sure that I was protecting them, but it did something else besides just wanting to make sure that my children were safe. It also um, made me realize the collective responsibility that I had, not only keeping my children safe, but your children safe other people's children safe, that this was a community. And I wanted to jump up and do everything in my power to do it. Not again, from my background and growing up, not waiting for Superman, but what can I do to protect? What can we do as community coming together to protect? Um, and so that's really kind of what drives me and, and inspires me. And every single day, I think on the other side, not just motivating me to action, my kids help me to see the joy 
to take the moments of, of levity and love because you really need it when you think about working on an issue that's so trauma-filled. Over 120 Americans are killed by guns every single day. And black people are 12 times more likely than white folks to die by gun homicide. There's so much that we think about when it comes to gun violence in America, um, including nearly six out of 10 gun deaths are suicides. So I could sit in all of that and feel incredibly hopeless, but I don't because one, I have the foundation looking at my children, which re-motivates me every single day. I think about the survivors of gun violence that get up every day and turn their pain into purpose, one foot in front of the other, and still fight to make sure that other communities do not have to feel the devastation that they feel. And I also think about the fact that the majority of Americans in this country are where we are. And so my job is to make sure I can get any obstacle out of the way. I can make sure I'm helping to empower walk alongside. Everybody is doing the hard and heavy lifting of making sure we're getting to the bottom of this public health crisis. And I really feel hopeful that this is possible. I wanted to talk a little bit about one of my, one of my personal obsessions in the advocacy space, which is obviously mothers create powerful imagery and have a very specific place in our kind of collective imaginations. And I was wondering to what extent you think explicitly about the imagery you're creating when you're running an advocacy organization. Is that something that, you know, does the role of presentation or even, I say theater, I don't mean that sort of pejoratively, but I just mean the theater of advocacy. There is theater to advocacy. Is that something that you're thinking about in your organizing work explicitly? Is that something that just sort of comes along with the process of figuring out how to get attention to an issue? Is that something that your internal team is like concerned about or or uh, focuses on at any point in the process of launching campaigns? Yes, absolutely. I think it's not only, like you said, like thinking about brand, uh, when you think about campaigns also, it's for me, it starts very simply with when we have a crisis like we do on our hands, this public health crisis, as I've mentioned, this requires a response that is uh, matching the crisis. That means all hands on deck. And so my biggest goal is to make sure that everyone sees themselves in the solution. So that means um, representation absolutely matters. Uh, and sometimes it looks like exactly where you are in the country, whether you're in Chicago, Illinois, or you're in Nebraska um, somewhere, or if you're, you're in Connecticut, you're in Arizona, like there might be different communities and populations and demographics. I want to make sure that people see themselves. I want to make sure whether you're a mom, a mother or other, whether you're a student or a young leader, whether you're a gun owner or not, there is a place for you in this issue because it impacts every single one of us. You cannot get away from it. And we all collectively, especially if we're thinking about the diversity and intersectionality of a, a diverse movement, we have the power and the solutions to make this happen. So for me, the representation and the image, imagery is simply, I want you to see yourself here. I want you to also understand that the on-ramp is really small. Like you step up, uh, again, having a, a coffee date with a friend and talking about, oh, hey, have you heard that? What do you think we can do? To deciding you're gonna throw in your hat and run for office Anything is acceptable as long as we're marching forward on this problem. So you've mentioned students uh, demand action. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that organization and uh, the ways that students are stepping up and getting involved. I heard a panel when, uh, at NetRoots about some 
with some students who were in students demand and they were just so inspiring. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about the kinds of things that they're doing. Yes, we're really excited about our young leaders. Um, first of all, I think again, um, they are living this, they are in it every single day. Uh, you know, the generation thinking about um, this current generation and then generation alpha that comes after, they're a generation that's lived in this kind of school, a drill culture when it comes to um, preparing for what they oftentimes feels like an inevitable, which it should not be, and it is not. Um, so making sure that we have their perspective and their leadership on this issue is critical, especially as we're shaping tomorrow. We wanna make sure that we're breaking through on the culture of gun violence in this country, which requires us to work with the people most directly impacted and young leaders are that. Uh, so we have student groups all across this country. And what we've done initially, our model was working with, when we say students, very traditional students. So thinking about, I'm a college student. Sometimes we have high school young leaders, um, but we've also over the past few years have really invested in what I call uh, young leaders that may not be um, kind of college bound or in college. That is just as important, if not sometimes more important to think about how we are uh, intentionally engaging. And one of the reasons I'll say that is when we think about uh, young leaders, particularly of color, particularly young black people, they are finding themselves in the places uh, where are of intersection with this, this issue of gun violence where they're disproportionately impacted. Um, and so we wanna make sure that we have the people um, that are most impacted uh, you know, the people that are mostly, when we think about gun violence as an issue, these young leaders are survivors sometimes three, four, five times over. I got to spend some time in Baltimore over the last couple months. Um, I had a, a full day where I got to spend with young leaders on the ground that are doing incredible work in their communities to address the, the gun violence problem, but also understanding that it, it's not just the gun violence alone, we're thinking about all the structural issues that make it easy to kind of keep a culture of violence in a community. And it's um, and it's something that's really impressive to see how young people are stepping up. So Students Demand Action engages in many campaigns. We allow them to really help to design uh, what makes most sense for either their campus or their neighborhood or communities. And we work to give them the tools and resources to carry those things through. As someone who's been involved in an issue that had a sort of student advocacy piece and a parent advocacy piece, I know there was often, especially early on, a lot of tension between parents who were accustomed to being the adults in the room and, you know, the younger people who were uh, who were the ones who were sort of directly impacted by the disaster that we were uh, advocating around. And, and, and that tension was sometimes very frustrating to deal with, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about balancing what it means to have experience with advocacy, with what it means to have experience with an issue and how you kind of find that balance when you're identifying student leaders, when you're helping offer them support, how do you make sure that the support is supportive and not, you know, and, and doesn't have sort of like uh, patronizing overtones or par parental right. overtones even, not even patronizing, but you know. Yeah. No, I totally hear that. And I forgot to mention, we have about 780 student groups across the country and it's only growing. So it's really incredible. I think it's really important. Um, and what we're trying to lean into is this intergenerational way of organizing. And like I said before, I've worked on different issue areas. And I think this issue in particular um, just is set up for that intergenerational space of, of organizing and moving and changing because the impacts I mean, there's no such thing as I've worked in issues where uh, 
it might be, well, we've been here, we know, we have the policy angles, we have the experience, you're just kind of head in the clouds, young people, you don't understand what's going on. Once you have a job or grow up and get like in the real world, then maybe talk to us. I've had some of that very demoralizing conversations, even when I was a young uh, organizer. I think with this, this is like trauma. This is loss of life, plain and simple. And it doesn't matter uh, from young, my five-year-old who now she's now six, Got the birthday was in November. So my now six-year-old, when she was about four and a half or five, came home really like upset, didn't know what happened. She didn't want to eat dinner. She was like waking up having nightmares. And when I talked to the, the uh, teacher the next day, I found out there was a drill, but we had no idea. And a young person had no idea, she like at five, had no idea that this was real or not. And was this following her home or not? So the fear of that. So when we think about young people, they are positioned because they're right in it. So there's no, um, I feel like there's no conversation like I had in other issues about experience versus now when we get down to the nuts and bolts of organizing of course we do everything to support the learning of not only our young leaders but also our moms mothers and others that come in that aren't necessarily organizers either but they're thrust into this movement for because they're inspired or to, to for change or they have personal impacts because they're a survivor of gun violence so we continue to move to make sure that both a resource and that we try to work together in an ecosystem so we understand uh, how all this benefits, whether you're a young leader uh, to a more seasoned leader like myself. So I, I said earlier, my favorite thing about Moms Demand Action, but actually I'm going to change my mind. I, so one of the okay. one of the things I really love about um, Moms Demand is the uh, the community that is formed. So this isn't just people who advocate together and then never see each other. These are people who often become friends, they get together, they get excited when there's a, a national convention that they can all see each other again. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of the community of organizing? Oh, I'm so glad that you brought this up because the organizing for policy and legislative change is so incredibly important. But just as important is the community building for many reasons. One being the fact that this issue, like I said, related to it is so much trauma. People have lost. So oftentimes we have a good amount of survivors uh, that come through our networks. And it's great to have a place where you have others that may understand what you're going through and you can work through together. There's like a healing component that happens when you can come together in community and also, uh, again, put your pain to purpose and figure out how to move forward so that you can be in a healing process while also saving lives. So that's one. I think also coming together is so important in this community is because um, it allows for opportunity to intersect across many different demographics. There might be people that you may not otherwise have interacted with because it brings you out of your own community. Um, so you have across race, across gun owner, non-gun owner, maybe ideology politically, like I'm a registered Republican or I'm a registered Democrat or I'm an independent. These spaces are incredible because it gets to break down some of the assumptions. Uh, you get to share knowledge together. You get to also broaden your perspective. I've had the most rich, fulfilling conversations with people that may not be on the same place I am, but in talking, we find some kind of commonality or understanding and we can actually move together. And frankly, that's what it's going to take to solve this problem. It's not just sitting in my, in my kind of side of the, uh, in my, what is it, my corner uh, and thinking about 
all the people that are in my corner that are like-minded. It's about solving this problem for everybody, which means we need more voices as part of it. And the last thing I'll say is that as you do this work, it's steeped in trauma. You also need and require joy uh, and levity to keep us going. So community also brings that time to celebrate, time to love, uh, time to reflect, time to hold accountable and learn together. So I think community is a very important component of our organizing strategy. Is there anything that we have not asked that you wish we had or wanted to talk about before we close? No, I would just say if anybody at all uh, feels like they're intrigued Maybe they aren't a person that's a joiner of things or feel like they have what it takes to, to step up and maybe pull up your sleeves and, and get working on this problem. I'd say there's nothing too small to contribute. Um, we are here. We have um, all kinds of tools and resources to help you figure out what it might be that you want to do to, to help to solve this problem. Uh, and you can simply start by texting READY to 64433. And we have our lovely volunteers across this country, no matter where you are, uh, we'll be able to get in touch with you and bring you into the fold. And I know it could be a big step to take, but uh, you know, I assure you that we uh, are ready to work with whomever wants to roll up their sleeves and get to work on solving this public health crisis. Angela, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a terrific conversation and uh, I love the work that you're doing. Thank you, Kelly and Loyola. This is amazing. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at whatcanidopod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at whatcanidopodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.